Welcome to the Meb Favor Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Meb Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Hey, everybody. This is Meb. It's fall time. Welcome back to the show. I'm in the office after a bit of a whirlwind country tour. Figured we'll do a Q&A episode today, so we're bringing back Jeff. Welcome, Jeff. How's it going? Uh, it's going good. It's good to be back in LA. It's like 95 degrees out, so hopefully get a little sun and a little surfing. Been kind of on the road a bit, but happy to be back in my own bed. Yeah, you've been out of town for a while now. Where you been? Was in San Francisco for a beautiful wedding and then hopped over to Las Vegas for four days for a business conference, which is a long time for anyone to be in Las Vegas. How much did you gamble? Usually I'm pretty good. You know, when I go there and mentally can prepare myself, I've been rock climbing and red rocks there. I've I've gone up Mount Charleston. This trip, I was going to do some mountain biking, but oddly enough, just never happened. I love to play poker. But at casinos, it's it, in tournaments and casinos, it's boring for me. I can't sit there for hours. If I put in some some podcasts now, maybe that's a good idea. I could do it, but it gets really boring. So I love to play with friends. I love to have a few beers and play. But but to play in a tournament, I played at one in here in L.A. and I remember looking over and seeing the the Lakers owner sitting there at some just junky casino. But you know, four hours in, it's two in the morning, and it's just kind of. You know, it's not that much fun to me. And then Blackjack, you know, back in the day, used to, in in the vein of Bill Gross, you know, used to count cards in Tahoe. I used to count cards, and that became fun up to about the first time I got kicked out of a casino because I was young, didn't have a bankroll. So, you know, after sitting there for six hours, again, it's not fun. because How do they catch you counting? Well, so it's not fun. You can't drink. You can't because otherwise you'll start to, I mean, you can have a few beers, but after that, your brain gets a little fuzzy. But you're sitting there with people... There's chain smokers at the table. It's depressing because you're watching them lose all their money. You have to bite your lip when someone's like, that's not what you're supposed to be doing, you know, when, when you're playing by basic strategy. So counting, I mean, blackjack in general, you have half a percent disadvantage. There's a lot of great books to read about this. Ed Thorpe, one of the pioneers, would love to get him on the show. He's actually local in Newport, ran one of the most successful, if not success, most successful hedge funds of all time called Princeton Newport. But he wrote the original book, Beat the Dealer. And it was about counting cards. And it's very, I mean, it's very simple. You can come up with a very simple high-low count that moves your advantage. And it's actually very interesting kind of applied to quant strategy because there's so many takeaways where you get a very slight edge, but played out over thousands of hands, you know, you're going to win. The same way as the casino is going to win no matter what if you play thousands of hands with basic strategy. It just means you lose less. Before we get too far down this rabbit hole, let's steer it back to something investing related. What were you talking about at your speeches in Vegas? It was a new talk. and Well, I did two, but the main one was a new talk. It was actually it's a Stansbury Research Conference. There's a great group. We'll get some of the guys on there because it gets the most eclectic crowd. So, I mean, there's speakers from Ron Paul to PJ O'Rourke. I mean, I had dinner. I was sitting next to a guy that had climbed and then skied down Everest. 
And then next to me on the other side was a, they had a hypnotist. I mean, it was the most eclectic yeah, was it last crowd. year you had a Laird Hamilton, right? Yeah, I had to go in after Laird. That was kind of a brutal, that was in, that was in LA. That was a, a brutal follow-up. And what's better than following Laird than um, some quant investing strategies? <laughs> so anyway, I talked about, this was a new one. It, it was four big investing mistakes. They're mistakes that not just retail or individuals make, but I see professionals make over and over and over again. And they're mistakes that are fairly easy to fix, but without a plan, you know, people continue to make them on all levels. Not just, I mean, again, it goes from the guy who's got a thousand bucks in his in his investing account to the people that manage billions of dollars. And you see them over and over and they're not that hard to, to fix. Can you give us a quick recap? Sure. sure. So um, there was four. The first one, and I'll run through them real quick, and then maybe we'll talk about one or two, but the first one was having unrealistic expectations. We've talked a lot about this on the podcast and blog in the past, where they'll do surveys for institutional investors. You know, We talked about institutional investors expecting 13% out of hedge funds, you know, just, which is just bananas, because that means on a gross level, they got to do like 20%. Um, but there was a recent survey from Schroeder's, interviewed 20,000 people around the world, and said, so what do you expect out of stock returns? And almost always, it falls right around 10%. If you look at the distribution, it's actually interesting because this is another psychology experiment. You know, it falls on the, on the hard numbers, 5, 10, oh, 15, numbers, 20, yeah. 0, 5, but mostly around 10. You know, what we said is, is the first step is why, why do people center around that number? And historically, it's because that's what stocks have returned in the U.S., 9.7% going back to, let's say, 1920 or 1900. And in particular, I think millennials in the U.S. were expecting 13%. Because in one of the reasons, they've never seen a bear market. Yeah, they've been influenced by the last you know, seven right. years or you're, so. You're, you're, you're guided by your own experience. If you're a young person in Japan, you don't invest in stocks because they've gone nowhere for 20 years. You know, that's a, that's a fool's game. That's a mugs game. Why would you ever do that? But in the U.S., for the last eight years, stocks have only gone up. You know, and we talked about this in a prior podcast, but the Dow, for example, is right now the third longest bull market ever. It, if it goes through December, if we cruise through the election, it goes to the second longest bull market ever. And if it makes it, to, I think it's either March, April, or May, it'll be the longest bull market of all time. Now, the magnitude, it's not the biggest, but it's up there as one of the longest, which, which is interesting. So the reason people anchor to that number is, one, that's what stocks have done historically. And two, you know, it's been a bull market for the last number of years. So people kind of gravitate towards that. But we say, you know, particularly right now, that's very unrealistic. You know, it kind of reminds me of your podcast with Arnott when he made the point that uh, low returns aren't a problem. It's low returns when your expectation is high returns is the problem. Yeah. Worst case is you spend less, save more. And I was in Vegas. So I said, all right, wait a week. You know, you can, you can still go to the buffet and, and do everything this week, which by the way, there was a line for the buffet. It was like an amusement park where this, where I was staying at Aria and it trickled around, snaked around, but there were signs like an amusement park where it's like, if you're in line at this point, you have to wait an hour and a half. When you're in line at this point, you have to wait two and a half hours. Why in God? I hate buffets already. You would never wait an hour and a well, half. Buffets for, are my nightmare anyway. I, why would you ever want food that's just been sitting out? Anyway, we're, we're getting off topic. But so one of the things I talked about, I said, you know, I talk a lot. I've been talking about valuations for years. And I'm, and I'm, kind, of, I'm, I'm kind of over it. I mean, I, I've talked about it so much till I'm blue in the face. And it's working wonderful this year as far as uh, global valuations. Um, a lot of the globe, the cheap countries are just blowing it out of the water. But we said, you know, for the U.S., for example, 
We talk, We wrote a book on this, Global Value. We talk a lot about the 10-year PE ratio as a good fundamental anchor. And people, for some reason, their brain just, you know, it it doesn't work when you talk about CAPE ratio. I, I don't know why. You can use any valuation metric. But so my point of this, so finally I said, oh, perfect. There's a recent um, video and article from John Bogle, you know, Vanguard's founder, the king of indexing and buy and hold. But he had published 25 years ago a very simple formula to to calculate expected stock returns. And I said in my speech, I said, you know, I'm only going to include one formula because Stephen Hawking says, he, he famously said when he wrote his book, Brief History of Time, he said, my editor says, every formula I include, I'm going to cut my readership by half. And so this, <laughs> in this case, I said, I'm only include one formula, but it's super simple. It's expected stock returns equal. There's only three inputs. One, starting dividend yield. And that's known. That's easy, okay? Two, earnings growth percent percentage number Mm -hmm. and three change in valuation and so the first two are the economics of a business uh, of and the stock and the business and so historically these numbers have been around a 4.7 percent dividend yield historically which is pretty high just s&p what is this yeah u.s large cap market market cap weighted so s&p back to when it existed and before that the the coles commission and everything else but market Mm -hmm. cap weighted two earnings growth Earnings and dividends growth, 4.7%. So it's, a, it's easy to remember because it's the same number. Uh, but, but you could round up, round out, say four and a half for either of those, whatever. That gets you. And then historically, valuation shouldn't change. Wait, but way back, this is all nominal? This is all nominal. Valuation okay. shouldn't change because over time, you know, it should be a wash. But because of a lower starting point in the beginning part of the century and a higher ending point now, you've had 0.3% per year tailwind. So that gets you to 9.7%, which is why people expect 10%. But let's go through and do that equation again. So right now, dividend yield 2%, if you're lucky. Okay. So way off the, the historical 4.7. A side note that reminds me of how you right now hate uh, dividend stocks. It's one of your least favorite totally separate, to Totally separate topic. <laughs> Another podcast. But yeah, you I, I, high yielding instruments in the US without a valuation filter, one of my least favorite investments. And so if you add those two together, 2% dividend yield. So, so earnings, earnings growth is hard to forecast because you can, you can assume a historical growth rate, but it tends to be mean reverting. And so we'll get into that later. But, but let's just assume historical growth rates, which we probably won't hit, but let's assume it. So 2% dividend yield, 4.7% earnings growth, and we'll assume valuation stay at the elevated levels where they are, which is a CAPE ratio of around 26. Historical is around 20, uh, 17. That gets you to 6.7%. So even right there, assuming earnings growth goes swimmingly, that valuations don't change, you're already three percentage points lower than historical. So mm-hmm. 6.7. But 6.7, hey, I mean, that would be awesome. That would be great. However, let's let's look at valuations. Let's say valuations revert to normal valuation levels, which is going from 26 down to 17. That takes you, so you get a 2% dividend yield, 4.7% earnings, minus 4.5, 4.6% per year valuation headwind. This is over 10 years, by the way. That gets you to 2.1%, mm. which basically keeps up with inflation. Now, if you say, look, I believe we're going to be in this normal inflationary environment. So one to 3%, one to 4% is kind of safe inflation zone. People pay more for stocks when you're in that zone. So the valuation multiple, let's say it can stay as high as 21 for the CAPE ratio. In that case, it's only about a 2% headwind and that gets you to 4.4% annual return. Again, this is why we always say, look, CAPE levels where we are at 27, it's not a bubble. 
it's not good. I mean, it's, it's high. So even if we mean revert on valuation, let's call it a, around a 4% expected return, which is better than bonds. But again, if you look at foreign markets, you input the same number. So maybe three, four, 5% dividend yield in some countries and uh, the valuation tailwind that gets you into double digit returns. In some cases, it's 10 to 15% returns for a lot of these countries that we talked about when we did that article at the beginning of the year, the cheapest markets of the world, the Brazils and Russias of the world, get a massive tailwind. So it's a very simple equation. It doesn't mean it's going to play out over this year or next year, but over the most next 10 years, it's, more, it's what's likely. And the example I gave in Vegas, as I said, it's like blackjack. You know, if you sit down at a table, this equation is like being able to play against the dealer, but deciding if you want to bet after the first round of cards have been dealt. So if you get dealt a 16 and the dealer has a 10, that's a very low expected return hand. You're likely to lose. So you can say, you know what? The equation for stock returns, the equation for this blackjack bet is not great. You don't have to play. And this is the name of an article we did on the blog. You said, there's no one saying you have to invest in stocks, right? So you can take a step back and say, you know what? I'm not going to make that bet. And maybe a cape ratio of 27 is not terrible for you, but but at some point, common sense takes over. If it's at 35, if it's at 45, where it has been historically, you know, a lot of people say for an expected return of zero or 2%, am I willing to risk 50 to 80% loss at some point, which has happened in the past. Very recently, 50% losses twice in the last decade, 80% loss in the Great Depression. But a lot of countries around the world are down, have been down over 50 to 80% in the last few years. Now, on the flip side, you could sit down at the table and have a 20 king and a queen, and the dealer has a six. That is a very high expected return bet. So you could say, you know what? I do want to play that. That's what I think a lot of emerging markets look like now. A lot of the cheapest markets around the world, which are having a fantastic year. I mean, we run a fund based on this, which had a horrible year in 2014, uh, a pretty good relatively year in 2016, a great year this year. But that sort of bet is a great bet. So you could say, yeah, I do want to place that bet. Now, again, it doesn't guarantee you're going to win. The dealer could flip over a five and hit a 10. They got 21. They win, right? But but it, it's putting the odds in your favor. So there's a spectrum of outcomes. Okay. So part of your advice then as part of this, as this pertained to your presentation was just your expectations, which means flip side of that is a look uh, global because you can probably get better returns. So second point. So yeah, I mean, so the, the, the four points we'd made, one was unrealistic expectations. Two was to get away from the U.S. focused portfolio. I mean, again, I've talked to I'm blue in the face about home country bias. People have way too much in the U.S. So start to move global. Uh, have a, you know, the U.S. is a percent of the world's market cap is only half. So have a minimum of half in foreign equities. I think you could go as high as three quarters. You know, that's very uncomfortable for most people. But the U.S. is a percentage of the world's GDP is only around 20%, 25%. So if you were to GDP weight the world, you would have three quarters in foreign stocks. One more quick point. As I also said, look, the cool thing about this equation is you can put in the extreme event, what has happened historically. So if U.S. stocks had gone from a CAPE ratio of 27 to 45, that only gets you so that the highest bubble we've ever had in the 90s for U.S. stocks that to go back to bubble valuation only gets you to about 12% returns per year. Mm. 
So you would think it'd be like 20% or something amazing. No, it only gets you to about 12 because we're starting from elevated valuations already. Now to go back to five, which we've been in the past a few times, that takes you to about minus 8% per year. And historically, stocks have, have only seen negative real returns a few times. But we'll link to the show notes on the blog on, on a couple of posts we did here. All right. So yeah, so one of the things, obviously, we've been saying this for many years, get a balanced global allocation, get exposure to foreign, particularly the cheap countries of the world we think will be much better. And so diversify globally makes a lot of sense. Sounds good. Well, do you want to rotate now to Q&A or you want to Well, there, there was, there was two more points we made and then we can move on to whatever the Q&A. I mean, the third with the point, and again, a lot of these are kind of like taking your medicine, paying too much in fees. You know, oh, yeah. You know, Jason Zweig had a great tweet about this today where he said, you know, something like the good news is financial advisor costs have come down. The bad news is the average is still like 1.3%. You know, and, and financial advisors, I love you guys, but I think you can... Uh, you're worth your weight in gold if uh, you deliver a lot of value-added services. But from the buy and hold asset allocation side, you want as cheap as possible for that. For a financial planner, for an advisor, that's great. You can pay whatever you feel comfortable with that will help you you know, have all your goals. And then it kind of ties into the last point, which is not having a plan. So I want everyone listening, whether you're on a run, whether you're in your car, uh, whether, whether you're using my soothing voice to go to sleep at night, Think about this for a second, write it down and say, do you have a written investment plan? I'm guessing the percentage is 5%. Jeff, do you have one? I do not. Yeah. And so meaning, and, and not just like, here's my allocation, but here's my asset allocation and here's how this will change. So this is how I'll rebalance it. Or this is how our, we talked about in the R&R podcast, over rebalance. This is how this will change based on XYZ happening. If interest rates go from 1.5% to 10. What, how would that affect my portfolio? And for a lot of people, is I have a buy and hold portfolio, it won't change at all. If interest rates go from 1.5% to minus 2. If oil goes back to 200 or oil goes to 10. If stocks go up 80% or down 80%. Do any of those impact your portfolio? If a nuclear bomb goes off in the Middle East. You know, I've even heard this idea expanded to individual security selection. So before you go out and purchase a stock or an ETF, you might want to sit down and write down why exactly am I buying this and under what conditions will I sell it, whether as a protective device or to take profits. You know, when was your thesis going to change? I, I love that advice and no one does it. And the reason they don't do it is a lot of people, like going back to the Vegas example, like to gamble. You know, people like buying lottery tickets. People like playing craps and blackjack in Vegas when they know they're going to lose. They like having an asset allocation where they have an input. They feel control. You know, they like the gambling nature of it. It gives so much temptation to be able to do it on the go. So, I mean, how many people listening are even think that Trump or Hillary has even a remote impact on what's going on with stocks for the next 10 years. You know, a lot of people and a lot of people will change their asset allocation based on the outcome of the election, even though I think it's meaningless about, you know, going into the election, about all these various inputs, what they read in the paper. And you can't predict what's going to happen. So do you have an asset allocation policy portfolio, what we call it in the endowment and real world space? And how are you going to update that given anything that could happen in the world. And if you don't, then you're, you're kind of just messing around. Well, part of the implication there is, is the time frame. 
So, you know, when you're going to update this, so somebody who's looking and, and actually believes that Hillary Trump might affect a portfolio, obviously has a much shorter time frame than you do. What do you think is the most effective time frame to have? So, well, stuff? so not only that, well, it depends on the person. I mean, there's people that are listening. They're going to be 85, 90. There's people that are listening that are probably 18. But again, and then it depends on their risk tolerance, what they're trying to do with their life, their goals, everything combined, right? right. But the best thing about writing this down is you should also share it with someone, whether it's your husband or wife or your children, your parents, your buddy, because it again it gives you accountability. And just like losing weight, you know, if you say, hey, some of the best ways to lose weight we people have shown is a lot of these, man, there used to be a website called Stick, but where you could make bets with people, say, hey, look, I'm going to email you once a month my weight. And if it's up, I have to put in $20 into, I have to donate it to charity. And then Stick had a great feature, whereas not only did you donate to charity, you would have to donate to like the anti-charity. So if you're like a diehard <laughs> Republican, you had to donate money to Hillary. So if there's anything that's going to make you probably, you know, stick to your diet and lose weight is the prospect of donating to something you hate. You know, so if you're a, you know, a person who believes in gun control, having to donate to the NRA. So, but, but my point being is that you have to, have accountability. Otherwise, if you don't tell them, if you write it down, you can just change, you can erase it, you can change the rules. Mm -hmm. If you have to talk to someone, and that's what, that's what the beauty of a financial advisor is, because they, they act as a wall between you and doing something really stupid. And also, this is also the beauty of a lot of the automated investing uh, strategies. You know, we just launched Cambria Digital Advisor, but I would I ask people now when I sit down with them, I say, look, why would you not have a low cost, commission free, rules based, automated, tax-efficient investment process. What's the alternative? Just watch Kramer and, you know, pick yeah. out, like, the, your best ideas? Starts on a board. Uh, you know, it's, it's so, it's, uh, it's, it's, what is the alternative? So, anyway, it's, um, so we talked about those four things, you know, but like talking about losing weight or talking about things that you know you should be, I mean, losing weight is also a simple equation for the most part, you know, people have different metabolism, their bodies are different, but in general, calories in versus calories burn for the most part is the simple equation. Again, there's, there's dials you can turn anyway. So wait, but, do I assume you've written down your own plan? Yeah, I, I publish it. I mean, I put my portfolio, I've published it the last few years. I say my portfolio each year. I need to update it now because we've transitioned to this Cambridge Digital Advisor. I invest 100% of our my net worth in our funds. And so people can see very clearly my mindset. And so my average Trinity exposure of the Cambria Trinities is one, you know, one being most conservative, six being most aggressive. I have three or four different accounts in there, some retirement, some not, and it's around three and a half. So I'm pretty middle of the road as far as... But you say you publish that once a year, Mm -hmm. but yet a minute ago, we're talking about this being potentially for you, a younger guy, a long-term thing. So how do you... Sure. Well, I mean, a lot of that has to come with the fact that as Cambria puts out new funds, as there's cheaper and better options, the broad allocation doesn't really change. It's the, is there cheaper funds? Is there better funds out there? So it's more kind of updating. It might be, um, but now I, I don't expect to do anything at all. I mean, it's totally hands off, right? So it's, it's a, it's a great, uh, great exposure. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll write it down and share it with you later. All right. <laughs> Anything else good from the, uh, speeches we should know about? Are we finished uh, up there? I, they may be streaming them. They, they may have them online. So we can find them online. We'll link to it. And then on the tail end of that, I came back home and then, and then it was my high school reunion. So I had to go back home to North Carolina, which I get very nostalgic for living out on the West Coast. My favorite part of the, the reunion was catching up with a buddy who I haven't seen in 20 years. And he said, Meb, 
you still driving that old Land Cruiser. And I had a 1983 Brown Land Cruiser in high school, which eventually died after college. And I said, ironically, I, I actually drove it to work today. I, I have now a 1967 Toyota Land Cruiser, which even spends more time in the garage, but, uh, but it's working now. So uh, knock, <laughs> knock on wood. All right. Well, in that case, let's uh, steer it back to some Q&A now. We got a... Uh, that was a long intro. We haven't even got to a Q&A yet. Let's go. Let's, <laughs> let's, let's find let's some quick, this. quick hits. All right. So, again, thanks to everybody for writing in. Keep them coming. I uh, got some great questions. I think we should start this week with a few on shareholder yield. We seem to get several of those for some reason. And then we'll move on from there. So, starting off, uh, how does MEB think about shareholder yield in the context of factors or smart beta? Is shareholder yield a factor in its own right, or is it a combination of factors? By the way, questions, feedback at the MEB Faber Show. Keep them coming. Jeff Jeff loves reading these, uh, <laughs> as do I. So, shareholder yield, for the readers might not be familiar, it's combining dividend yield and net buybacks. And we think it is one of the most basic mistakes of investing to only focus on dividends or only focus on buybacks. It It is the most nonsensical investment approach I can think of to only focus on one of those because you're only looking at one side of the coin. So if you're if you're listening to this and you still invest based on dividends or buybacks, ask yourself why. I mean, it, it is it is so nonsensical. I can't even begin. But it, I, I wrote this book a while ago, so I'm, I'm my emotions have tamped down a little bit about the process. So. Anything that moves away from what we call market cap weighting, which is just investing based on the size of stocks or investments, which is what reflects the global world opportunity set, you know, the S&P has more in Apple than it does in some tiny uh, healthcare stock or biotech stock. Anything that moves away from that is... And if it's if it's rules based uh, based on a factor, and a factor is something like dividend yield or earnings growth, by definition, it's in my belief, it's kind of smart beta. So yes, shareholder yield is smart beta. And, and the question for a lot of people is, you know, how do I pick a smart beta approach? Well, you know, you can certainly sort by one factor, such as value or momentum or quality, which is what a lot of funds do. Or you can sort by lots of factors, which is called multi-factor, and they may include five of them, or they may include 20, or in some cases, a lot of these quant mutual funds or hedge funds, they may include 500. And it's funny, if you type in a a stock for a multi-factor portfolio, look, everyone has the same PhDs. So you'll, you'll type in a stock name and look at the holders and AQR owns it and LSV owns it and DE Shaw owns it and all of them own the same thing. So, you know, but, but for, for me, it's some of my, my favorite factors, of course, are value and momentum. Even if you equal weight and move away from market cap portfolio, I think you add a percent or two. That's the biggest thing. Just breaking the market cap link because that puts you in expensive stuff and the bigger stuff. You're dovetailing into the second question, Good, ironically. I haven't, I, by the way, I don't get to see any of these questions ahead of time, so I'm a perfect lead in. All right, what's that? Should an investor expect portfolios with a shareholder yield tilt to outperform similar portfolios with size, value, and momentum tilts? They'll start to look more similar. So, you know, the worst thing you can, I mean, look, market cap is a great first step. I'm okay with you investing in the S&P 500, but I think you can improve that by equal weighting or any other weighting. Now, I have my pet favorites because shareholder yield, for example, very high correlation to free cash flow. Because it's companies, if you think about it, it's com- and, and we use additional factors set in our funds for value and then a final sort on momentum. So our shareholder yield fund ends up in, in cheap companies that have a lot of cash flow because you can't have cash flow and distribute it 
you know, if you're and 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 also that are under leveraged. So we we look at, at having lower levels of debt. And so, yes, will that look similar to certain multi-factor portfolios? Because you know they they sort maybe they start on quality and then sort on value and then sort on momentum. So a lot of them will end up in the same place. Now, again, I think you need to be very concentrated. And we've talked about this with a few different guests where we said, you know, if you're going to have a portfolio like this, be different. So whether it's 50 stocks, 100 stocks, but concentrate enough for it to be different than what the world's doing. That's good sometimes and terrible other times. Any active strategy can underperform for years. But yeah, it will look more similar to certain. So right now, that go anywhere style portfolio ends up having somewhat of a mid cap tilt and certainly a tilt towards value uh, stocks as well. Just playing devil's advocate, you tilt towards or you put a filter valuation on your shareholder yield. Why wouldn't you put a valuation of just momentum? Because, you know, uh, value can stay depressed for a while. It doesn't necessarily mean you're going to catch any tailwind, but momentum could be very uh, overvalued. But if it's moving in the right direction, you're getting a little bit of benefit there. Okay, so there's there's a lot of ways to skin the cat. And people, the academic literature does this a lot of different ways. So we have another fund that's a value and momentum style uh, methodology. And so a lot of people say, for example, you know, momentum and value tend to not correlate most of the time. Sometimes they do. And so it's nice to combine two things that have low correlation. And so, so some people, for example, in the literature, the way they do the funds is they'll rank all stocks on value and then rank all stocks on momentum and then take the average of the two invest in that portfolio. Some people will invest in the top, say it will rank the top third of value and then sort those by momentum. You end up in kind of the same place, you know, because when we talk a lot about these factors like value and trend and momentum and everything else, you know, one of the biggest takeaways for me is always, it's not just that you're buying the cheapest or you're buying the stuff that's going up. So value and momentum, you're also avoiding the most expensive and what's going down. So either way, you kind of try to skin the cat, you're going to be scraping off the junk on the top and investing in the good stuff in the bottom. You may not end up with a lot of overlap, but if you look at a lot of funds and there's some cool tools out there for ETF and fund investors, Morningstar, of course, is great. And there's some other ones that you can look through the portfolio, look at overlap, which by the way, is another very important thing to think about because a lot of funds, they may sound like they're very different active factor base, but they end up looking almost like the very index, what we call index huggers. So they'll end up looking just like the S&P, but they'll charge higher fees for it. So you want to make sure that you're different enough to, to be able to actually add any value and of course have uh, some low cost too. Okay. Third question on shareholder yield. Uh, regarding the book, while I understand the concept, I wonder if a low percentage of buybacks has any meaningful impact on the stock price. Like you might have not fully gotten the gist of okay, it. Yeah. So, so, I mean, again, you know, you can take the strategy back to the 20s. Uh, O'Shaughnessy has in his book, what, what Works on Wall Street. And it's outperformed, I think, every decade. Maybe one that it hasn't outperformed, but a basic strategy has done very well. It's done particularly well since the 80s when the rules kind of structurally changed in favor of buybacks. But here's the cool thing about a holistic approach. All that people care about is the total distribution amount, and that has the highest correlation with value. Because let's say people don't know this, but if you look at dividends and net buybacks, and you have to use net buybacks because there's companies, rewind to the 90s, but certainly today, that may be issuing more shares than are buying back. So they may issue 4% dilution 
to pay executives, to pay bonuses, but then only buy back 2%. So in reality, you may think, hey, cool, 2% buyback. No, you're actually getting a negative 2% because you're issuing all these options to management. So a very simple way to, to look at this is uh, last 12 months shares outstanding change. Charts does a very good job about that. We've talked about this on the blog. Obviously, you can look it up on Bloomberg, other sources, but that's one way to look at it. And, and then combining that with dividend yield. So you could have a 0% dividend yield and a 5% buyback yield or vice versa. Or in the Apple's case, you know, a lot of these companies that do both, it's the holistic measure. Um, a couple of the caveats about it, one is this is a hard strategy to track because not a lot of the software out there tracks net buyback yield, payout yield, shareholder yield, all these different vernacular definitions of it. And it's a little harder to find than just dividend yield. But in general, it looks like a much better portfolio. I mean, I said this a million times, the largest dividend ETF right now it has a higher valuation than the S&P and a lower dividend yield, which obviously makes no sense to invest in. Anyway. <laughs> All right. So before we get you down the rabbit hole on dividend yield, we'll move on. Is there a specific reason why I never hear you uh, talk about adding small cap to a portfolio? It's the last market premium that can be added without changing the portfolio concept. When French Fama and a lot of other researchers started talking about, you know, some of the factors that added value to a portfolio, they talked about value, they talked about just the market in general, they talked about uh, size. And small cap has historically outperformed. A lot of that performance comes in January. And in my mind, why January? Um, there's a lot of reasons for it. But, but some of it has to do with probably tax selling. I think it's kind of a flimsy factor. Meaning, I I would never just just bet on small cap. I mean, there's there's in in a world of infinite choice, why wouldn't you pick a much better structure such as value? And small cap tends to have better can have better value because market cap tends to be overweighted, right? Because the the more expensive stuff gets bigger. But in a world where you don't have to just choose between small cap or large cap, I mean, look, they're going to have super high correlation. They're used to, they're still U.S. stocks. So if you're trying to, you know, I mean, how many people, how many portfolios have I seen where they come in with a bunch of mutual funds and they have 10 U.S. stock funds, small cap, mid cap growth, large cap value, large cap growth. So basically you just bought the S&P. Now, there's some caveats to this. If you're an active manager, is the small cap space less efficient? Yes, absolutely think so. Almost any factor-based strategy, whether it's value, momentum, et cetera, works better in small caps than it does in large cap. Because large cap is much more competitive. The big dudes, the really these guys with the $10 billion mutual funds or hedge funds, they can only wade in that pool because they're much too big to trade a market cap stock that has $200 million market cap. So it becomes much more efficient. There's 50 banks, 100 covering Apple. There's probably zero covering some little tiny medical insurance company based out of you know South Dakota that has a tiny market cap. So given that innate potential alpha right there, why haven't you personally taken your factors and your strategies and sort of focused them more on a smaller cap space? We're agnostic. So our funds are actually go anywhere. And there's times when small cap as an asset class is more attractive than large cap and vice versa. So back to the late 90s, large cap was the super expensive stuff. The Cisco's of the world. Fast forward, and so you could have had a small cap portfolio and not even have really had much of a bear market, depending on what you invested in, in the early 2000s. Now, then small caps 
and over the last few years got to one of the most expensive they've ever been relative to large cap, which is why they sucked so much wind over the past few years relative to large cap stocks. That's now back to normal. So that's so you know, and you can go search our blog archives. We used to post a chart of PE ratios of small cap versus large cap. We said, look, you should be avoiding small cap, and they've had a huge underperformance, and it's now back to normal. So, what's, what's their multiple, traditional multiple relative to large cap? It depends on what metric you're using, but it's traditionally higher. But it, uh, but it, it goes all over the place. You know, they're yeah. volatile, right? And so, but so I would rather have a quantitative approach that says, look, I want to find the best regardless of size. So whether it's and and again, once you get to a certain size you can't mess around with the small caps and small caps are also more liquid. So there's a higher trading cost. The uh, research affiliates will, will post this show notes has put out some interesting literature lately. A lot of people have about the factor exposures, but can you actually implement them in say small cap and at various levels of size? So momentum traditionally, because it's very high turnover, the, the trading kind of kills the premium. Mm-hmm. So you can obviously come up with rules to reduce the turnover, to reduce the exposure to small caps or whatever it may be that fixes that. But in general, the naive rules are very tough because if you're trading a little $20 million market cap company versus trading Apple, you know, it's a very different scenario. There's going to be cost. You're going to like, if you try to put in a hundred million into a company that's 500 million market cap, you can't, you're going to yeah. move it $20. So it, uh, there, there's, there's very, real-world consequences of these theoretical sort of debates. But in general, like, if you had to ask me, you know, Meb, would you rather have small cap or large cap? i say that's the wrong question. And really is what's the best investing approach to kind of go anywhere? And then that also dovetails into the U.S. versus foreign right now. So, you know, where, where would you most like to be? You don't have to be in the U.S., although if you are, there are certain areas that look much better than others, but it waxes and wanes. Sometimes large caps look so much better. Sometimes small cap looks as much better. So hypothetically, if small caps uh, fall in value, we see their multiples dropping a lot. We're going to see a lot more from you on the blog about uh, pointing them out. Yeah, we update it. I mean, we a lot of these charts, we only update when they're interesting. So a lot of it's I mean, the vast majority of time the investment world spins in kind of ho-hum mode. You know, where like it's in normal valuation ranges where things aren't at extremes. And so you, there's not really a whole lot, you know, takeaways. But we were writing a lot about the, the small caps being expensive the last few years. And most of that's uh, gone away. Perhaps you could discuss the relative merits of investing in ETFs versus bonds directly. Assuming the bond is from a strong company and you're going to hold to maturity, buying direct seems to be safer than buying a fund. Uh, it's safer. I, I don't really know what safer means. So I think they're both probably fine. You know, with, with ETFs, you get diversification and breadth. So if you invest in many of these ETFs, you end up getting 50, 100, 5,000 different securities. So if you want to just go buy a Coca-Cola corporate bond or whatever, maybe great. I mean, I, I, I really care less. But in general, you know, bond funds, it's less the tax efficiencies are smaller than they are for ET, uh, equity ETFs. It makes much bigger difference in the, in the stock world than in bonds. But it, it's more of a diversification benefit. So the ability to go get the whole investment-grade corporate bond exposure. In our case, we have a sovereign high-yield bond ETF You know that you get exposure to many, many things and you don't have to go trade it yourself. I mean, you want to go trade it? I don't care. I mean, it's not... It's personal preference in this case. The whole process of looking up a QSIP number and dealing with the bond desk sounds like more of a pain to me than just, you know, that, that world is that trading of that is also very opaque. You don't have centralized exchanges, which people have been trying to change it, which I've also, also been curious about for 20 years, why 
there aren't more bond exchanges. But yeah, I mean, it's it, these spreads can be massive. I mean, I know a lot mm-hmm. of bond traders, and it's a phone call business. I mean, you call people and say, hey, you got any inventory for Coca-Cola corporate bonds? And especially for the little stuff. I mean, there, there's some mile wide spreads on a that's and that's how they make their money. Yeah. Regarding the contrary nature of sentiment indicators, while no indicator could ever be considered totally accurate, it does seem that contrary trends can provide increased odds of success over medium to long term periods. Has there been much discussion on the use of sentiment indicators to add tangible long term value? We talk a lot about sentiment. I mean, we talked about it. In January, when the market was going down viciously, one of the worst starts to the year ever, and the reading for the AAII bullish people, they asked people, were they bullish, neutral, or bearish on stocks? It was one of the lowest bullish readings ever. And historically, if you go out 12 months and you take the most bullish, when people are most bullish, future 12-month returns are terrible. I think they're even negative. And when they're most bearish future returns are great. It's like 12 or 14% a year. And so we wrote about it in late January. He said, and the name of the post was come on bounce. I said, look, when things usually get this bad, the next year is usually pretty good. And that, and that's played out. Now it's, you know, who knows? I mean, that's not, that's a very small sample size of one, but in general, when you get to extremes, it's usually helps in your favor to go the other way. And we've written a lot on mean reversion type of strategies. You know, we've talked about it, the the down multiple years in a row. We've talked about down 60 to 90%. And there's a lot of ways, you know, in, in the are not podcast, we talked about over rebalancing. And the challenge is, you know, for a lot of people, how you implement it, how in the, the joke, I'm going to stop using this joke because I've used it so much is, you know, what do you call an investment down 90%? That's something down 80% then gets cut in half again. So you could buy something that's down 80% and say, oh, hot dog, I got something that's down. It was at 100, now it's down at 20. I'm going to get huge returns, and then it goes to 10. And you mm-hmm. just lost half your money. Yeah. So it, it's, you know, sentiment, I think it's a great input. We don't have a lot that is a quantitative trigger based purely on sentiment. Usually, it has a high correlation with other things we use, such as value. You know, if you look at Brazil, when we wrote about it at the beginning of the year, we said, hey, this is the cheapest stock market in the world. Sentiment there was horrific. I mean, you know, we have politicians getting impeached. You have essentially a Great Depression there. Single digit, I mean, the PE ratio got to, uh, Global Cape got to five. It certainly got to eight, maybe five. But but a high high correlation across the board for everything. And then eventually, it rec- things get so bad that when they get slightly better, you see big returns in Brazil. In the U.S. terms, I think it's up 60% this year. I would think that if you were going to use an indicator or sentiment in general, you have to be very careful about what you're using. I remember that whole concept of uh, the contrarian indicator was when Barron's has a cover that features like you know a bull that's really strong or can't quit. That's when you got to get out. I remember that happened back in maybe 2013. There's a quote about like Hussman saying it's time to get out because Barron's just had yeah. another bull cover. And then, of course, it keeps rising a few right, years. Right. So a lot so. of those are just anecdotal. Right. You know, I mean, exactly. and, and would I ever invest based on a Barron's cover? No. Uh, it, I mean, it's 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 tough. You know, I mean, I, but but a lot of the quantitative ones, I mean, we, we published another one at the beginning of last year. And it's a this is from Luthold Group one of our favorite research shops where they looked at another sentiment survey that goes back. It's either the fifties or sixties institutional investor, I think is what it is. 
Investor's intelligence, that's what it was. And they took the average bullish reading for the year. So they said, let's, let's take a little step back. And the beginning of 2015 was the second highest reading ever. They did, of course, the quant sorting and found that when you're in the, the high readings, future returns for the next year are basically zero. And 2015 returns in the stock market were basically zero, uh, which is a really cool takeaway. So sentiment right now, it's, it seems pretty normal. AAII, which does two different surveys. One is, are you bullish, neutral, or bearish on stocks? And the other is, how are you allocated? And people are still, you know, not bullish on that bullish on stocks, but they have a much higher stock allocation Mm -hmm. because stocks have simply gone up. And so it's kind of a little bit of do what I say or do what I do. There's that chart. One of our favorite charts is household equity as a percentage of assets has a massive correlation to future 10 year stock returns inverse, right? So when people have most in stocks, future stock returns are low and they have the least in stocks, future stock returns are high. And that so totally doesn't even look at valuation whatsoever, puts you at around a 4% future return for stocks. Yeah, it makes it interesting. P- people who are worried about, you know, we're about to sort of drop off the edge of a cliff right now. It's hard to imagine that happening when sentiment's not ex- you know, exuberant and that high up. I mean, you can see returns being muted, but this whole concept of things are about to completely collapse, it's just hard to really believe that. Things can collapse, but let's just wait till we get our tail risk fund out then they can collapse then it'll be great i won't mind after that well speaking of that uh next question is you talk a lot about risk but there are so many definitions out there how do you define it well there's a there's a great book by bernstein i think it's peter not bill both are great we actually sent out a great we'll, we'll tag a show notes there was a couple good interviews we sent out to the idea farm which is our research service, one with Bill Bernstein and one with Phil Tetlock. Just remind me why those. Anyway, uh, risk. So there's Peter Peter Bernstein book on this topic and it's called Against... Oh man, what is it called? Not Against the Odds. It's something, The Remarkable Story of Risk. We'll tag it, whatever. And it's a great book. You should read it. There's a lot of ways to think about it. And and again, it's all encompassing terms. So historically, you know, people have thought about it in terms of volatility. People don't care about volatility. They care less about volatility. People love up volatility. So you're making money. No one cares if that volatility is high. Right. They care about down volatility. But all that means is they care about losses. Survey after survey after survey, you see that people can handle a 10% loss. They don't like it. They start to grumble. 20% 20% they're gone. And, and, and that's just over and over and over again. And I've seen that in our decade of managing money. That's, that's the inflection point where people throw up their hands. Okay. Well, so by, by that definition, then a 20% loss after you've made 40%, you're still up. What about risk as it connotes does, to your principal? It does, doesn't matter. People anchor. This is a great recent example. Let's say you have an investment, a stock, or, and you have 100 grand in, in a stock. Let's call it Bristol Myers. One of the listeners listening to this will know, <laughs> know who you are. You got a hundred grand of Bristol Myers. Let's say over the past five years, it's gone up to 200 grand. Okay. And then whatever just happened, they announced some drug failing or whatever, and it goes back down to 150. That person is not thinking, awesome, I'm up 50 grand. Yeah. They're thinking, I'm down 50 grand. I had 200, now I have 150. And so the same thing happens with markets, same thing happens with portfolios. 
we, we did a post where we talked about percentage of time. So there's only two states in the world for your portfolio or stock, same difference, but say portfolio. You're either in an all-time high or you're in a drawdown. There is no in-between. And most investments spend only about 20% of the time at all-time highs. So to, the name of the post I think we did is said to be a good investor you need to be good you need to be a good loser because you spend the vast majority of the time down from your all time high portfolio so most of the time you're in some state of losing money it, for, at least mentally from your anchoring point so but I think most people the, the biggest statistic they care about is drawdown which is you know distance from all time high peak to trough loss and which is why I also think that most Investors we see have far too aggressive portfolios. They come in with a lot of the automated services, which I think are wonderful. You know, the equations you can write down on paper, hey, young people, you should, and, and Bernstein was actually talking about that in the interview. He says, young people, you should be 100% in stocks. But that's not good advice because no young person can handle a 50, 80%, they can't handle the volatility and losses. You lose 80%, you can't keep saying, yeah, keep putting your paycheck in this. This is a great investment because mentally they can't accept it. Yeah. it it's, it's too hard. And I totally 100% sympathize with that. And I, I think most people have more aggressive allocations. And the example he used in this interview, he goes, look, if you're wealthy or you have a good portfolio and your lifestyle is fine, you've won the game. You don't have to put that money at risk. Right. So, you know, the, we always talk about the sleep at night portfolios that only take as much risk as you can and sleep at night to where, you know, in most assets, there's almost no asset al allocation portfolio that's not going to lose 20, 25%. I've also heard, you know, when you're discussing risk, look at your portfolio less in terms of its NAV and more about it as its potential as a cash generating mechanism. Because that, that was, that was our not talking about that. That's tough. That's, I think that's tough. You know, yes, that is the rational way to think about it, but people don't think in those terms. They think about the number in their bank account. You know, they're not saying, oh, well, this account is going to generate 30 grand a year in dividends and income. I mean, they may, but then they say, that thing just went down 50%. It's yeah. still generating 30 grand, but I have half less. What am I going to do? So I, th I think people, it's really hard to accept those big losses, which is why, in many ways, I mean, a 60 40 portfolio has lost two-thirds in the U.S. We can't find a country in the world where it hasn't lost two-thirds in that country. And two-thirds, forget about it. I mean, no one, no one can take that. So most people, we say, look, almost every asset allocation portfolio in our book did, I think, 9 to 10% a year. And real did around 5% a year because inflation was higher from the 70s and 80s, but, but did about 5% a year. It's going to make no difference to you, in my mind, if you make 3% or 5% returns real or seven or 10% nominal. It's going to make a big difference if to get those 5% returns, you had to have a 50% loss at some point, you know? So to me, I think people are much more comfortable, which is why I'm totally fine with a chunk in cash because it all, even if that cash isn't earning anything and there's ways to optimize that cash returns, you can invest in the highest bank accounts in the country that, that up to the limit, which I think is 250 grand. And just rotate it, and, and you know, you're, you're totally protected by the government. And there's some interesting websites that will do that for you, and I can't remember off the top of my head. We'll, we'll link to it. But I have no problem with cash because it gives you an emotional and psychological optionality to where there's something 
in a side that if the market goes down 20, 50, 80%, you have that, but you can also put it to work, even if it's not earning that much. Just curious, what's your biggest personal loss on something? Oh, I mean, there's many things that have been 100%. You know, we talked yeah. about, in I think in the early podcast, especially when I was young, I had all the behavioral mistakes. I mean, when I, I, I used to trade biotechs in college as a biotech student in the late 90s, so you can imagine how fun that was, right? <laughs> Everything went up, but the, the beauty back then is I would short the IPO lockups, which was just like shooting fish in a barrel. But I remember going on spring break to Jamaica. I did, quote, didn't have time because I was late to the airport. And so didn't put in any of the shorts. I would put in short orders and, and let the portfolio sit. Well, of course, what happened, that was when the first Clinton came out and made some nonsensical statement about can't patent the human genome. Basically an excuse for all the high-flying stocks to go down 50% or whatever it was over the ensuing week. But you learn those lessons and hopefully you learn them when you're young. You know, we talked about a, a biotech options trade that I blew up as a young investor. And Tudor Jones talked about this. There's some quotes where it's basically like, you know, you, you want to have that experience because you learn very quickly the real pain of losing money. And as a young investor, every young investor listening to this podcast, there's probably not too many, should be praying for the stock market to go down 50% and be praying for the investment world to go to, to go to hell for the next 10 years. Now, if you're 90 years old or that's not your time frame, if you're young, you should be praying for things to get whacked so that the rest of your expected returns in your lifetime will be much higher as you have more money to put to work. Anyway. Uh, yeah, I've, I've, I've come to my investment stance now having made all the mistakes. I got all the behavioral biases, which is why I have an automated approach now that, that keeps me from doing dumb stuff. I've made plenty of dumb mistakes myself. Yeah. Mostly through options. Um, all right, next question. I've been thinking a lot about global CAPE ratios recently and the cheaper countries like Russia, Poland, Brazil. However, were the U.S. to enter a major correction, I can't help but think the aforementioned markets would follow suit, at least to some degree. Would this correlation not in part negate the decision to invest in cheaper markets? Historically, and there's two publications we'll link, Star Capital, which is one of our favorite CAPE aficionados, and who is the other one? James Montier, who's now at GMO, have both published, and we've published it on the blog as well, if you look at CAPE ratios for the U.S., but also international, and Star did it not just for CAPE, but for five other valuation metrics, if you put them into buckets and then look at future one to five-year drawdowns, so the biggest loss you experience based on the starting valuation, it's exactly what you would expect. When you pay a lot for something, you have a much higher chance of a big fat loss. When you pay little for something, you have more of a margin of safety. So in general, if you're paying CAPE ratio of 40, 50, 60, 90 for something, you got a pretty good chance of losing a lot of money. And the good news is there's nothing in the world that looks that way now. But it has as, as early as a few years ago. So the U.S. is expensive, but it's not terrible. Man, I mean, again, this people, when they want to talk about CAPE ratio, they want to think it's a bubble, it's crazy, it's going to go down 10% a year for the next 10 years, or it's the best buy of all time and it's going to go up hundreds of percent. Like the, Most of the time, these countries spend in this kind of normal, boring valuation zone of, let's call it 12 to 25. They spend in this sort of normal, you know, some cheap, some expensive. So historically, the more you invest in a high valuation, you're going to get a big fat loss. 
doesn't guarantee it. So yes, if the U.S. went down 50%, would I expect foreign stocks to magically go up, you know, hundreds of percents? Probably not, but because stocks have high correlation, but they do diverge. I mean, you, you'll see various markets at various times. The U.S. and foreign, we posted a chart of the 12 month as well as five year out or underperformance. There's massive, massive periods of under and out performance. The most recent being the U.S. from the global financial crisis to now has had massive outperformance over foreign, but it's a coin flip. U.S. versus foreign is 50% any given year, a coin flip. So uh, I'm much, much more comfortable in many of these foreign markets, which is finally working in 2016. I'm so happy that these markets are finally having a great year, with the exception of Europe. Europe is still a basket case, but Russia and Brazil, a lot of countries really having banner years. All right. All right. Go ahead. I was saying, I, I, my, my voice, I'm getting, we're hitting about an hour. Should we start winding this down? I see you have about nine pages of questions. Yeah, we can cut it down. But actually, one quick question on this, though. You know, I realize there's, you know, a greater degree of correlation between U.S. stocks and, you know, foreign stocks or EM stocks. But if the CAPE ratios are significantly different, you know, I think back about your podcast with Arnott, which you talked about a sympathy crash and correlation. You know, if you see something crashing, uh, based upon a, a different market when it shouldn't be, then that actually potentially is a great time to buy in. You'll see a, uh, potentially a much stronger reversion back to where it went. Um, that, I, you know, I would yeah, think that, that, that this- comment, that comment makes a lot of sense. I would never build an investment strategy around it. You know I mean? From a technical analysis analysis or a technician's perspective, that makes complete sense. That's one of the most kind of revered sort of technical rules. It's called relative strength, essentially, is what you just described, momentum. So I totally sympathize with that. I want to make that a systematic approach. So whether you're using value, could you add a momentum or trend filter? Absolutely. And I think a lot of our approaches do that. Um, but but I think, uh, yes, is, is that a good sign? Yeah, absolutely. If, uh, if, you're, if you're seeing that relative strength, and you're starting to see that now. So over the past seven years, it's been U.S. stocks and bonds, REITs. REITs have just absolutely crushed it. But you're see- And then in this year, you had long bonds, obviously, around the world doing wonderful. You're starting to see the rotation. Precious metals started to make it in earlier this year for relative strength, global momentum portfolio. A lot of the foreign markets are catching up now. So I, nothing would make me happier than a nice, fat foreign stock market run for, for a few years and in the U.S. to get back to reasonable valuations because then I'd be a little more popular in my talks and I could say U.S. <laughs> stock returns 10% plus. We'll expect it. We're excited. All right. I'm, I'm running out of voice, so I'll start to wind down. Anything else from you? Yeah. Stay cool. away. All right. We'll do another Q&A episode soon. So, uh, look, uh, thanks for taking the time to listen. Please keep sending Q&A questions to feedback at the com. Uh, as a reminder, you can always find the show notes and other episodes at mebfaber.com forward slash podcast. want to thank all of you who have left reviews. You know who you are. For those who, who haven't, take 10 seconds, go leave a review on iTunes or any of the other uh, listening apps. We really, really appreciate it. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing. With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com insights.